My name is Brian Bergman. I am uh, a member here at the Sunset Church, and uh, our regular preaching minister, Jim, is, I would say, at heart, a missionary and a church planter. And so he spends one Sunday a month with a congregation up in Broward County. Uh, he mentors their leadership as they are working to build a congregation up there. And so I have the opportunity to uh, to bring the lesson today, and it is a, a privilege and an honor to be uh, before you. I hope you are doing well this morning. It is good to see you. If you're visiting with us, we are very glad to have you here. We thank you for choosing to be part of our worship service this morning and hope that you will leave this place edified this morning. And we hope that you have the opportunity to get to know us a little bit better as this morning goes on. Uh, for many of you, this past week has been uh, the first full week after a busy holiday season. Uh, for the adults in the room, we have gone back to our jobs. We've gotten back into our daily work routines. Uh, for our kids, they went back to school this week and have begun the process of doing homework again and going through their, their daily activities. Christmas is an interesting uh, time of year. Uh, but depending on your perspective, the way you approach Christmas uh, may differ. On the secular calendar, Christmas falls at the end of our calendar year. And so for many people, Christmas is the pinnacle of the year. It's, it's the thing we work towards all year long. And at the end of the year, it, it's, a, it's a grand celebration leading to New Year's Eve as the last hurrah before settling back down into a new year. If you're primarily focused on the school calendar, Christmas is more of a break in the middle of the year. It's a way to pause from the, the routine. It's a way to pause from the busyness and to take a breath and, and take some time to, to rejuvenate before the push to the completion of the end of the term. In the historical Christian calendar, the season of Advent and Christmas are the beginning of the Christian year. And so when we come to Christmas, when we come to Advent, we are beginning an annual rhythm of moving through the life and death of Jesus into the life of the church, culminating with uh, the promises that we have of eternal life with God when he returns, when his son comes back to take us home. So as Christians... These competing mindsets make it difficult for us to figure out how we approach this holiday from a faith standpoint, from a discipleship perspective. How do we make Christmas and the, the, the days that follow it more of a spiritual exercise? So beginning in December, we have moved through some of the themes of Advent around the birth of Jesus, talking about his coming, his incarnation, the hope, the joy, the peace that come as a result of God taking on flesh Last week, we began a series on Epiphany. Epiphany is the season of the calendar in which we look at the different revelations of Jesus as the divine Son of God. So last week, we, based on our song, Arise and Shine, we looked at the prophet Isaiah telling the people to arise and shine because a new light has dawned. And Jesus compared the birth, or Jim compared the birth of Jesus to the dawning of a new day. As we move into spring and summer, our days are going to get longer. We're going to have more and more light. And Jim compared the coming of Jesus to that concept. And so today we're going to continue the revelation of Jesus as a divine son of God in our text today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus today. So beginning in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, Matthew writes, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
The first thing I want to note about our text today is this episode, this story of the baptism of Jesus, is one of the few stories that is consistent across all four Gospels. It's, it's one of the few stories that shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you look at each of the Gospels, the way they're structured, Matthew and Luke both tell us a little bit about the birth of Jesus, about his childhood. John gives this theological prologue to his Gospel where he talks about the Word becoming flesh, the Word being with God at the beginning, taking on flesh and becoming a man. When you set aside those introductory aspects of Matthew and Luke and John, what we find is that all four Gospels start the story of Jesus in the same place. They all start with this man, John, appearing and preaching about repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. And directly in response to that, we see Jesus coming to John to be baptized. And so Matthew says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, our lack of familiarity with the region, or maybe an over-familiarity with the scripture, we may not catch just what this means when it says Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. So try to picture, if you've, if you've got a, Bible, a map in your Bible, you might flip back and look at a map of Israel. The Jordan River cuts through Israel, beginning up at the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus lives, and it ends southern, in the southern part of this country in the Dead Sea. Now, John was baptizing pretty far south, across the river probably, from Jerusalem and Jericho. And so for Jesus to come from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John was about a 70-mile journey, which means it probably took him several days to get there. It was a trip that he had to prepare for, to make plans for, which shows us that Jesus was very intentional in coming to John for this baptism. He didn't just happen to be walking by John one day and decide, I'm going to be baptized too. Jesus knew that John's baptism was a crucial part of his ministry, and he very intentionally set out from his own home to a different part of the country to go to John for this baptism. Now, all four of the Gospels begin Jesus' adult ministry with this story. So I think it's interesting that Jesus is publicly declared here in the wilderness at the baptism of John. Jesus doesn't make his public appearance at the praetorium, declaring to the Romans that their authority in Israel has ended. Jesus doesn't go to Herod's palace and say, you are not the rightful king of the Jews. And Jesus does not go to the temple or to the home of the high priest and say, you are not leading Israel in the right way. Now, Jesus will stand in every one of those halls of power at some point in his ministry, and he will confront all those powers. But to begin his ministry, Jesus joins the masses going to John the Baptist, seeking his baptism. So what is this baptism that John is preaching? What is this baptism that John is conducting? So let's read on. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now what is this baptism that John is reluctant to give to Jesus? So John has been in the wilderness preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So John is saying that God is, about to, God is about to begin his kingdom. The thing that God has been promising for centuries is about to happen in our midst. So in order to prepare for that, the people must repent. And as a sign of that repentance, they are coming to John, confessing their sins, 
and being baptized. Now, when we look outside of the book of Matthew, when we look at Luke, when we look at Mark, when we look at John, the Gospel of John, we see a little bit more what, what John the Baptist means by repentance. He tells the tax collectors, stop taking more money than is owed. He tells the Roman soldiers in the, in, in the military, stop extorting money from people. He tells those who have extra food and clothing, give your extra to those who need it. See, for John, repentance was more than simply the act of baptism. For John, repentance was about a change of life. For John, repentance was about a new way of living that declares a new loyalty to God's kingdom rather than to the kingdoms of men. And so Jesus comes to John and John protests because John believes that Jesus is bringing an even greater baptism. John believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of that kingdom. So if I am preparing for this new kingdom, and Jesus is the establishment of that new kingdom, why should I be baptizing him? I need to be baptized by him into his new kingdom. But Jesus says, no, we have to do it this way. I think it's interesting that just before Jesus appears, and John tries to deter him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees also come to Jesus for baptism, and John deters them as well. But he deters them for a different reason. He looks at the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and sees they need repentance, but they are not sincere in their approach. Jesus, in John's mind, does not need to repent. He is already the embodiment of the kingdom. Yet he sincerely comes to John, seeking John's baptism. And so, in the very next verse, Jesus replies, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? If you look back through the first couple of chapters of Matthew, you see Matthew using this word fulfill several times. When the angel appears to Joseph in a vision and says, this is going to be the name, Matthew says, this is done in order to fulfill what the prophets had said. When Jesus flees to Egypt with his family to avoid the wrath of Herod, Matthew tells us this is done to fulfill what the prophet said. When those innocent children in Bethlehem are slaughtered by Herod, Matthew tells us this was done to fulfill what the prophets had said. And when Jesus returns to Nazareth, Matthew says this was done to fulfill the prophets. So Jesus says, let's do this. It must be done to fulfill righteousness. So if we take Matthew's understanding of what it means to fulfill something, what Jesus is doing in coming to John is fulfilling the things that God has promised. In Jesus' mind, he is doing the very thing that God intended for him to do. He is fulfilling the plan. He is part of the plan. And notice what he says to John. Let us do this to fulfill righteousness. It's not that Jesus needs to fulfill it. It's he and John together are fulfilling what God had planned. Because John's purpose was to come, announce the kingdom, and as we see in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist testifies about Jesus because of what he sees at the baptism. And so working together, Jesus and John, in his baptism, fulfill all righteousness. And in fulfilling it, what we find Jesus doing is he is identifying with Israel. Much of what Matthew has presented so far in a way, in Jesus' life, is a retelling of the Exodus story. 
Jesus flees to Egypt, and he's going to come back from Egypt for his ministry. We have the death of innocent children at the hands of the, of the, 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 the cruel tyrant leader. And we have Jesus crossing over the Jordan River in order to take on his kingdom. So Jesus is fulfilling the role of Israel in his life and in his baptism. So after John consents, says as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So as Jesus is baptized, we get a a divine affirmation of who Jesus is. The heavens open. That may not seem substantial to us, but the opening of heavens has significance in the Jewish mindset. Prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah see the heavens open. And when they see the heavens open, it's a sign that God is giving them a special mission as a prophet. God is taking them and giving them this mission to go to the people of Israel and preach. When Stephen is being stoned in Acts, the last thing Stephen sees is he looks up and he sees the heavens opened and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. The heavens opening is a revelation of God. And in in the book of Revelation... John, the gospel writer John, sees heaven opening and he hears a voice and God invites him into heaven temporarily to say, see what is going to happen. So when, when we see here in the baptism of Jesus that the heavens are opening at this moment, this is a moment of divine revelation. And the spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove, this puts Jesus in the prophetic tradition. This puts Jesus in the tradition of Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel, prophets who were given a special measure of the Spirit so that they could carry the message of God to the people. And so this is a moment in which God affirms Jesus. We see his divinity, we see his acceptance, and we see that Jesus is in fact the one who is going to establish this kingdom. So by seeking the baptism of John, Jesus is setting out on a path that's going to lead him to his true purpose in coming to earth. He's beginning a journey that's going to lead him to the cross. So what do we make of this story? What does this story have to do with us? 2,000 years later, sitting in an auditorium, what does it mean for us? Baptism is a core practice of the Christian faith. Over the centuries, much has been written about who should be baptized, how they should be baptized, when they should be baptized, And what it means when they're baptized. If we set those discussions aside for just a moment, what we see is across time and across belief system, one thing that has been consistent across all forms of Christianity is the practice of baptism. And so we must look at the Bible to see what baptism means. If it is a core practice that we engage in, if it's a core core part of our being, what does it mean? And so historically, the church has looked at any text in the Bible that mentions baptism to try to discern meaning for our own baptism. So I want to make some observations this morning about what the baptism of Jesus can do to help us make sense of our own baptism. But before we get to those observations, it's important to note how the baptism factors into Matthew's gospel. Notice a couple of things about Matthew's telling of the story of the baptism. 
First of all, when you look at Luke and Mark, they are careful to point out that John's baptism was a baptism for repentance leading to the forgiveness of sins. Matthew is the only gospel writer that records John's reluctance to baptize Jesus. And so some have wondered, what do we make of that? Did Jesus need to be forgiven of his sins? Well, we know that Jesus was perfect. We know that Jesus was sinless. And so what about Jesus needed, what did he need baptism if he didn't have sin? So when we notice that Matthew does not mention the forgiveness of sins as an important aspect of the baptism of John. And so Matthew is pointing towards Jesus of baptism more along the lines of its fulfillment of Scripture, not tying it necessarily to the forgiveness of sins. We also need to notice that Matthew does not include the story of Jesus' baptism as a prescriptive or normative event for us. Jesus does, Matthew does not say Jesus was baptized, so you should be baptized. Jesus roots believers' baptism at the end of his gospel when Jesus commands his disciples to go into the whole world, make disciples of all nations, and baptize them into my name, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. That's where Matthew roots our practice of baptism as his followers. So the story of Jesus is not set as an exemplar for us to follow. We are not following in Jesus' footsteps necessarily. But having said that, there are some aspects of our baptism that I think we have in common with the baptism of Jesus. So first, baptism is an act of submission. John protested that Jesus needed to be baptized by him. And yet, Jesus comes to him and submits to him. Jesus did not come to John and say, I'm here, let me baptize you, and I'm taking over your ministry. Now, John knew fully, John fully knew that, Matthew was, that Jesus was going to take his place. All the gospel writers report this. John was consistent in saying, someone is going to follow me who is going to baptize with a baptism even greater than mine. And his baptism, and he is so much greater than I am, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. In fact, a couple of the gospel writers tell us that people were asking John, are you the Messiah? And John was very clear to say, I am not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming after me. And yet, Jesus comes to John and says, I need to take part in your baptism. Even though John himself has already acknowledged that Jesus is greater than John, Jesus says, I need to submit myself to you in order to fulfill righteousness. Submission is a part of the character and nature of Jesus. When he confronts Herod, when he confronts Pilate, when he confronts the high priest, we see it not in a combative manner, but in a manner of submission in a manner of humility, in a manner of quietness. And that's how we approach our own baptism, in a posture of submission. When we come to be baptized, we are physically submitting ourselves to someone else's control. As they take us into the water, they literally hold our life in their hand. If they hold us under the water too long, we will stop breathing. We are physically submitting, but on a deeper level, we are spiritually submitting ourselves to God. In coming to baptism, we are declaring our weakness, we are declaring our failings, we are declaring our need for God to rescue us, to forgive us of our sins. So baptism is an act of submission. Second, baptism is an act of relation. As Jesus comes up out of the water, 
he is greeted by God saying, this is my son. God declares his relationship to Jesus in his baptism. And I think this affirmation flows from the submission that he showed in submitting to John. Because you have submitted, because you've shown that you are willing to follow my plan, because you're willing to trust me, I'm going to affirm you as my son. In the same way as we submit to baptism, as we submit to God, God declares in our baptism that we are also his sons and daughters. The New Testament writers consistently make clear that when we are baptized, we become children of God. The New Testament writers use language about adoption, about receiving the spirit of sonship, and the Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters because we are his followers. And so baptism is an act of relation. Third, baptism is an act of consecration. Many people came to John for his baptism. As far as we know, Jesus is the only one to receive this heavenly public declaration of who he is. God's voice calls out and says, This is my son whom I love. I am pleased with him. And the spirit comes down and rests upon him. So his baptism sets him apart as unique. And because of this uniqueness that is evident in his own baptism, John the Baptist is able to testify, that's the one the Spirit told me about. That's the one I was told was coming. In the same way, the New Testament writers make clear that those of us who have been baptized have also been consecrated. We've also been set apart as holy. We've also been sealed with the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, marking us as God's possessions. And then lastly, baptism is an act of commission. One of the key aspects of John's message was repentance. Repentance and producing a fruit that shows that repentance. And so John gave very concrete answers to what people should do, how they should change their lives as a result of their baptism. Jesus, likewise, began a journey his baptism. The very next thing Jesus is going to do after he's baptized is be led into the Spirit, led into the wilderness by the Spirit where he's going to face temptation. In that temptation, the tempter is going to challenge his relationship and say, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are, in fact, the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you're, in fact, the Son of God, throw yourself from the temple so that God can prove you're his Son by saving you. And after his temptation, Jesus is going to carry out his ministry, teaching, healing, leading people, and most importantly, he's going to walk towards the cross. So for Jesus, the baptism was simply the beginning of his ministry. It was not a coronation. It was not the end. It was the beginning. Likewise, our baptism is not the culmination of our faith. It's simply the beginning point. For those of us who may have grown up in the church, it might be a, a transition where our faith deepens, where our commitment becomes more clear. For those who have had a more radical conversion, who may not have grown up in the faith, baptism is a true starting point. But what all the New Testament writers make clear is that baptism leads to a new life. Paul, Peter, all the writers of the New Testament, when they talk about baptism, they are often using it to remind these first Christians of what they had committed themselves to. Paul will say, because you were baptized, you are now united with the Jews and the Gentiles. Because you've been baptized, you've been given a new life. Paul's message is clear. 
when you've been baptized, something new should happen. When you've been baptized, a new life has started. When you were baptized, you began a new journey with Christ. And so for all of us, baptism is a common experience that should orient us to a new reality. It's a common experience that sets us apart from the world around us. In it, we submit to God. We find our relation to God and to his followers. We are consecrated as holy, and we are commissioned into his purpose to do his will. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. For those of you that have been baptized this morning, this is your reality. You have submitted to Christ. You are his son, his daughter. You've been set apart as holy, and you've been commissioned into his purpose. So the question for you is, are you fulfilling that purpose? Or are you, do you see your baptism as the culmination of your faith, where you just sit back and wait for the end to come? If you've not been baptized, baptism is a core part of who we are. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came, that he died, that he was resurrected, and that he sits at the right hand of Jesus now, at the God of God now, the question is, why would you not be baptized? Why would you not participate in this action in which centuries of Christians have engaged since the time of Jesus? So if we can pray for you this morning, if we can help you understand your own baptism better, if we can study with you or take you into the waters of baptism, we invite you to come now while we stand and while we sing. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our